You're listening to Food Integrity Now with Carol Gravey, Matt Spaeth, and Jeannie Smith, revealing the truth about the food we eat. Hello and welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravey. I'm the host of the show today. And with me today, I have Matthew Stein. We've had Matthew on our show before, and we're excited to have him back. Matt is an environmentalist, a best-selling author, an MIT-trained engineer, and a green builder. And we had him on our show before to discuss his first book, which was When Technology Fails. And we could have talked for hours about that book. It's, it's amazing. I, I said to people, every home should have this book. And now he has a new book out called When Disaster Strikes. So we're going to be talking uh, to Matt today about uh, being prepared. And this this show is not about instilling fear in anyone. It's about being prepared for when disaster strikes. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be back on your show today. So Matt, where do we want to start today? I think I think it might be beneficial uh, to start with why you've written these books and why you feel it's important to be prepared. Well, the reason I wrote the uh, the first book, and that first book led into the second one, is that back in 1997, um, I at that point had a practice of mostly daily prayer and meditation. Now, I'm an MIT engineer. It's not like I see and hear things on a regular basis, you know, visionary type things. But in 1997, I made a simple generic request in my morning session of prayer and meditation for guidance and inspiration, and I got a bomb dropped in my lap. I received a, call it a storyboard pictorial type outline for this massive book project, which became the book When Technology Fails. And in that when that cosmic download is dumped into my head, I was I was essentially shown the need for a book to help people live more sustainably and also help them cope with a period of, of turmoil when access to our high tech, um, you know, tools and goodies and and central services of our highly organized and interconnected global economy might be disrupted for long periods of time and might even collapse. Now, back in 1997, that was a rude shock because realize this was when dot-com was booming. We were in the biggest building boom. Oil was at about a 30-year low when you factored in inflation. And just everything on the surface appeared like it couldn't be better. And yet, I was shown a period of you know intense environmental degradation and problems all over the planet coping and keeping up and that the systems we've taken for granted as always being there might not be there for long periods of time. Now the new book, When Disaster Strikes, is sort of a spin-off of when technology fails. People complain, well, you know, this when technology fails is so massive, it's like uh, eight and a half by eleven over five hundred pages. It'd be over a thousand pages in a regular sized book. So it's kind of Kind of like uh, phone book size, and they, people said, "Well, I want, I want a book that is smaller that I can put into a little emergency kit that can help me plan and deal with common short-term emergencies and maybe even longer ones like fires and earthquakes, hurricanes, storms, uh, severe winter weather. You know, when the power's out and the weather and the weather's really really cold." 
uh, like 10 degrees or 10 below, you know, what do you do? How do you how do you cope if it's out for an extended period when there's no uh, in the middle of winter in, in harsh weather? So the new book, When Disaster Strikes, is a more compact book that's focused particularly on emergency preparedness and crisis survival. So the first third of the book covers, there's four chapters. It covers general supplies and preparation, short-term survival kits, food storage, self-reliance in the home, and, and things like backup, heats, lights, and power. As an engineer and building contractor, people are always asking me, well, you know, what do you recommend for generators? And, you know, what do you recommend for a solar system? And and how do I hook these things up? And you know, how, how can I do it safely? And so I provided a lot of that information in there. And then the next six chapters covers essential skills, tools, techniques, and tips, such as a comprehensive first aid manual that's included in the book, a you know fairly comprehensive emergency survival guide that is heavily illustrated, a chapter on personal protection and self-defense, chapter on staying healthy in a pandemic when medical facilities are unavailable, or in our modern day when with the uh, the day and age of antibiotic-resistant superbugs like MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph infection. You know, maybe you come home from the gym or the hospital with a with a bug that uh, no medicines from the pharmacy are going to treat, and, and if you don't have access to alternatives, then you might die or lose a limb. And then things like water purification and storage, and a, and a new, brand new chapter on communication. So there's a lot of new, some information that's crossover between the two books, and some that's all new. And then the final seven chapters cover detailed instructions and expert guidance and strategies, pertain, both for preparing for and dealing with specific disasters, such as fires, whether it's a fire in the home or a wildfire. Uh, earthquakes, her, uh, chapter on hurricanes and floods, including uh, information on, on flooding's evil twin, which is toxic mold that often is a huge problem in the aftermath of a flood. And then there's brand new chapters on EMP and solar storms, that's electromagnetic pulse and solar storms, a lot of concern in a lot of people's mind for very good reason. And there's a brand new chapter called The Unthinkable, Surviving a Nuclear Catastrophe, and it's it's quite ironic that I finished the, the draft for this chapter three days before the Japanese earthquake and tsunami that crippled the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear reactor plant in Japan. And so, so it was a very pertinent, uh, very pertinent and very timely chapter. As I was reading this book and going through it, uh, I was amazed at things that you came up with that I've never thought about. And I was just really thankful that I had the book because, you know, even though I, I may not comprehend it all at the time when I'm reading it, uh, it, it's a great resource to go back to if and when something happens, you know, to, well, to, to look it up and, and go, okay, this is, this, this will work. And, and this is how you do this. Right. I mean, it's a combination of the two. The, the first part of the book helps walk you through basic steps of emergency preparedness. And, so that, you know, naturally for a lot of this, it's fairly simple stuff that's not too expensive and not too time consuming that you can start on, on your own while the skies are blue and everything's still working well is certainly the best time to do that. And then the intermediate chapters on skills and, and techniques and tools are quite helpful for learning and being aware of that and, and building some of your little toolkit. 
And then the last chapter is like you say, if, if something does happen, at least you can pull the book down and get it at your fingertips and you can, you can say, okay, what do I need to do now and how do I cope with this? And so yeah, it, it's, it's like, Car insurance, you know, emergency preparedness is like buying insurance. You know, I nobody... loved how you articulated that in the book. Yeah, share that with people because that, that made total sense to me. Yeah, see, I don't know anyone who buys car insurance who says, gee, I want to get in a head-on collision today. You know, no, you, you know, you hope you never need it. You pray to God you never need it. But if that day comes, you know, maybe somebody's texting on their cell phone and goes through that stop sign and side, you know, hits you in the side of your car or or maybe you skid on some ice due to no fault to anybody and have a wreck, but you thank God you're covered by that insurance, and the preparedness is like that. You know, you hope you never need it, but every single person you see in a picture of a disaster, usually walking down the street, often cold, wet, hungry, thirsty, sometimes sick, sometimes injured, every one of those people thought this is something that was going to happen to somebody else in some other place at some other time. And so, you know, Hopefully it never happens, but boy, if you've spent a little time and money getting ready and that day comes when you need it, you'll thank God and that time and money will be worth the weight in gold that you spent in uh, preparing ahead of time. You talk about having a family emergency plan. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Sure. See, simple little things like... In most disasters, the cell phones will be the first thing to go down. And what's the first thing that happens in a disaster? Everyone wants to collect their family together, and they want to see how everybody is, and are they okay? So the emergency plan gives you some sort of practiced procedures to be ready ahead of time so that when communications are down and nobody knows what's going on and what's happening, you have a sense of what to do. So one of the things would be like if we're separated and can't communicate, that we're all going to meet at a certain place. Now, obviously, if you can get home, then you meet home, but maybe there's a, a, a central schoolyard or field you can meet in. Another thing is that local communications are often down in a crisis, but... For some reason, you're able to get a call out of the area much sooner than you can call within the area. So, for instance, I had a friend who was in the Tahoe Truckee area about four hours out of the Bay Area when his wife was visiting her brother in the Santa Cruz Mountains during the Loma Prieta earthquake. And for three days, he could not get a call in to see how everything was going, but she was able to get a call out. So, sometimes what you can do is say, for instance, hey, if you can get a call out and you can't reach us, let's everyone connect with, say, Aunt Sue in Oklahoma City, you know, Kansas City, someplace far away, and you can at least try to relay a message that way. Another thing in the plan is having everyone know how to shut off the power and the water and the gas supply to a home. I mean, in, both in fires and in earthquakes, uh, being able to shut off at least the gas supply to your home, if you have natural gas or propane, is very important to prevent your home from perhaps uh, going up in an explosion or, or an extreme fire. I read so, that last night in your book, Matt, and I realized I'm not sure I know how to do that. So uh, I'm, I'm going to make sure I know how to do that now. Well, and there's a special wrench uh, or even just a large adjustable wrench. And you can buy them for just a few bucks at, at most hardware stores now, you know, Lowe's, Home Depot, or your Ace local hardware. And... It's a good idea to take that special wrench and place one or tape one to the shutoff for your gas supply 
And so I've got a couple of these because I've got a, a unit across above the, above my garage that has its own shutoff in the main house. And in fact, I was just showing my wife a few weeks ago, and finally it's like, you know, you got to know this too, not just me. Because <laughs> I may not be here, I may be gone, you know, I could be hurt, anything. So you need to know this too. And so I was showing her those things. And it's pretty simple. I mean, you just put the wrench on the little valve and and you just turn it so it points 90 degrees across the pipe and it's off. And when it's in line with the pipe, it's on. I mean, it's 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 a no-brainer thing. But if you've never seen it and don't have a clue where it is, then uh, <laughs> then you'll be clueless. Yeah, and also you you might be kind of stressed out if you're in the middle of a disaster and you may not be thinking as clearly. So if you've done it before, if you've kind of practiced it, you right. know, it won't be as stressful. Right. So those are some of the items in the in the emergency plan. So that you basically just, you know, you've got kids, maybe you don't have kids. And how do you deal with pets? Most shelters will not take a pet, or certainly if they will, the pet has to be in a container, like, a, you know, a crate. And so, you know, people, you got thinking ahead of times makes things so much easier. I mean, in a in a crisis, there's nothing like the family pet to help calm people down and help you feel a little better. And, and you know, and so considering the family pet as well as do you have, does anybody need any pharmaceutical medications? Do you have spare glasses on hand in case glasses get broken or lost? Uh, you know, just think about the main items that would be so important. And one of the parts of the family emergency plan is, is my life in a box. And what that means is, you know, in a crisis, often you might just be able to grab a box of stuff. And that's about it. And so if you've got critical items to help put your life back together again, like a flash drive with family pictures, like copies of birth certificates, marriage certificates, stock certificates, insurance forms, bank account numbers, things like that, just uh, important stuff, uh, re medical records, uh, immunization records, just things where you say, boy, if I lost that stuff, you know, a lot of a lot of things you can just replace, but memories you can't and critical information might be very difficult. So just those, the that little section of the back of one of the early chapters that tells you what's most important to put in a box so that if you had to evacuate, you could at least grab that box and, and put you miles ahead of losing everything. Matt, you talk about uh, the pit of the stomach exercise. you want to share with our listeners what that is? Sure, this could be the most valuable thing that I might teach you today. And See, in a, in a crisis situation, you often just don't have very, very good information at your fingertips. I mean, you just don't really know all of the everything you would like to know to make a good decision. And so the rational mind is a great computer when it's got all the information it needs to make a good logical decision. But often in a crisis, you're, you're faced with having to make decisions that could be life and death or certainly the difference between you know, immense suffering and relative comfort. And so at that point, you know you can't trust the rational mind if it's changing its mind every minute. You know, when you when you when you're flip flopping all over the place and say maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that, maybe we should do that, then it's like okay, wait a minute, time to slow down, because Mother Nature has built the most incredible survival mechanism into each and every one of us. It's this 
those people that didn't have it in their DNA or their spiritual DNA, well, they died on the battlefield, they got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, they got popped in the pot by the cannibal. So those people that didn't have it in their genetic makeup, they just, uh, it, you know, they just didn't make it. So everybody's got it. So here's what you need to do in, in a situation where you don't know what to do, is get into, and I call this the pit of the stomach. So I'm going to use a real-life example here. This is the James Kim story. It's a, it's a pretty tragic story. Uh, not all bad, but, but tough. He was a well-known person from the Bay Area, and he was with his wife and two infant children up in Seattle for Thanksgiving, and then they're, they're headed back to the Bay, California Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, on Highway 5, and they are driving down the Central Valley of Oregon, and it was late at night, and they'd missed their exit, and they were supposed to, they had a reservation at a, at a hotel on, on a beach town on the coast of Oregon. Well, they're, they realized an hour or two too late that they'd missed their exit, and they thought, oh my God, it's going to be four in the morning if we go backtrack a couple hours, go across the coast and back down, so what are we going to do? Well, they, they looked in the map, and they saw what looked like a shortcut, a, a small road that went through the mountains to the coast. So they headed up this road, and this is before GPSs, and the road got smaller and smaller, and it turned out they got disoriented. And even the main road wouldn't have made it through with the snow, but they got onto a really tiny road, and it's snowing, and it's scary. It looked like cliffs off the side. They thought, well, wait a minute. We're just going to stop and spend the night. This is too scary, too dangerous. So they woke up in the morning, totally snowbound, totally disoriented, out of cell phone range, didn't know what to do. Well, a couple days go by. They run out of gas. They run out of food. They run out of water. The father takes the tires off the car and burns them to create black smoke, hoping someone will see it and will come and rescue them, but no such luck. So, here he is, like, what do I do? Well, the rational mind says you follow the river, that that will eventually take you to civilization. Now, in this situation, I'd say, let's get in touch with this inner compass. Let's use the pit of the stomach technique to get that inner sort of spiritual, intuitive, gut feel, whatever you want to call it, that inner compass mother nature built into us to guide us. So, in doing this, you're going to think in pictures instead of rational, linear thought. You're going to avoid the rational, linear thought. So what would James Kim do? Well, he'd sit there and he'd offer a little prayer. If he's spiritual, ask God, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, whatever, whatever he wanted for guidance and help. Then the next thing he's going to do is he's going to deep breathe, breathe quite deeply until the muscles in his stomach relaxed, till he can feel the area between the belly button and the rib cage just totally relaxed. Might take a while if you're in a really tough situation. Now he's going to think in pictures. First thing he's going to do is he's going to picture himself going down this river. So as he goes down in his mind, he just pictures himself walking down the river. And then you feel your body for the reaction. Again, you're not using your head. You're feeling it in your body. So you feel the stomach, and if you feel the stomach tighten up into a knot, or if you feel a sick queasy, nauseous feeling, then you know, bad idea, not a good solution, okay? So then it's like, wow, wow, that, I did, that, that's no good. So then he thinks, okay, okay, let me relax again, do some deep breathing, relax the stomach. Then it's like, well, maybe I should be up on the ridge. So he pictures himself hiking up to the ridge and walking along the ridge top. Perhaps on the ridge, there'd be a rescue helicopter looking for him, maybe somebody sells, you know, his dad or somebody 
knew he didn't show up where he was supposed to be, and maybe there's someone out looking for him. Maybe he'll see the smokestack in the distance of some fire at, at some cottage that he can find his way to, whatever. So he pictures himself hiking up along the ridge. Now, maybe he gets a bad feeling again. It's like, oh, wow, that's no good either. Then it's like, well, maybe I should stay in the car. Now, the rational mind is screaming at him, saying, no, you don't stay in the car. That's the chicken thing to do, and it hasn't worked so far. You're going to just starve and freeze to death and die with your family sitting in this car. So you, you can't just do this. But maybe he pictures himself sitting in the car and gets that ah feeling. You get a, an expanded, relaxed feeling in the pit of the stomach, sort of a, you know, an expansive feeling. And it's like, oh, wow, I should stay in the car. Well, here's what happened. When they didn't show up in Gold Beach uh, like they were supposed to, James's father got quite upset and started trying to figure out where they were. He called, was able to get people to track the cell phone tower records and figured out where his most recent calls were from. And so they found the part of the world where he was likely lost and stuff, and they sent out a search party. Well, the search party did find the wife and the two infant children, somewhat hypothermic, quite cold, quite hungry, but basically okay, you know, no, no long-term medical issues or problems. Unfortunately, James Kim had gotten cold and wet trudging through snow and in the rains in the Oregon mountains and he was found lying face down beside the creek about a half a mile up from a hunting lodge that had he reached the lodge he could have broken in and uh, gotten whatever he needed to continue a few more miles to civilization. So it was a, a, a tragic story but it's a good teaching story because the rules of, of survival are just guidelines and you need to temper them with this inborn inner compass that Mother Nature has built into each and every one of us. And, and I totally, I totally believe that because I know that you know I'm a life coach, and one of the things that I teach a lot of my clients is that when you're in that high beta brainwave, which is you know that state of excitement, anxiety. The choices that you make from that place may not be beneficial for you. So I give them a t technique called balanced breathing to lower the brain waves, which is kind of similar to what you, what you've taught with this uh, with this exercise to to assist them to get more in the theta brain wave where you can trust your inner knowingness. So it's a, it's a similar similar process. And it works. And there's countless survivors who have talked about being in a situation that was quite scary and they didn't know what to do and they're very scattered and then suddenly something snaps and switches and there's like an inner knowing and and they just simply know what to do at every moment and you can you know when it's that inner compass when when you you must test it if it's changing its mind every minute then that's the mind and the brain mind and the ego and you know you can't trust that so that inner that inner guide is quite steady and unwavering. Now, usually it's quiet, like Jesus calls it the still small voice of spirit, but usually it's quiet and calm, but not always, because sometimes in a, in a very dangerous situation, it's almost screaming at you, trying to get your attention and saying, wake up and, you know, notice that this is happening and let me guide you in the right direction. But but it does not change its mind. It's, it's very unwavering and very steady. Yeah, if we pay attention, we can get it. On that note, we are going to take a break to pay attention to our sponsors. You're listening to Food Integrity Now. We'll be right back. 
everyone. This is Carol again, and I just wanted to talk to you about one of our new sponsors, Hole in the Wall Herb and Vitamin Shop up in Woodland Park. The owners, Mark and Nancy Duvall, are not only close personal friends, but they're also my nutritional gurus. They are now selling, teaching, and doing a Syra bioenergetic testing on their clients. I had this done, and I found out all my food allergies, emotional stressors, environmental sensitivities, hormonal balance, and I received a customized homeopathic remedy. Please call them for more information at 1-800-437-3240. Linda Masterson, Soul Purpose Astrologer, works with astrological tools and with guides in the non-physical to assist ones in knowing their soul purpose. Important in this process is identification of significant blockages. In each session, tools are provided for working with self to clear resistance and free talents, skills, and abilities to fuller expression. The goal is to take responsibility for and to accelerate the healing process. Phone sessions are offered by Linda. Please visit Linda at lindamasterson.com or call 808-651-0307. Again, that's 808-651-0307. Welcome back to Food Integrity Now, and we're talking with Matt Stein about his most recent book, When Disaster Strikes. And let's move on, Matt, to um, you talk about uh, drop, cover, and hold uh, regarding an earthquake, and you feel like this is a very important process uh, to learn about. You want to share that with our listeners? Sure. In, you know, earthquakes are something that we're seeing all over the world in increasing severity. And we're seeing in the United States earthquakes propping up in areas that, you know, people for generations haven't experienced a strong earthquake. So this information could be quite valuable for you. Now, it turns out that in earthquakes in this country, for the most part, people are hurt by flying objects and debris and breaking, shattering windows. And so the best chance of preventing serious injury is to drop down so you're not not knocked off your feet and to try and cover your head with something, whether it's a pillow or whether it's a table or whether it's a door jam, and to try and hold on so that you're not thrown around the room. Now, there is a a while back, there was an article spread around the Internet called uh, The Triangle of Life, and I, I like to alert people to at least be aware of the concept because even though the experts say drop, cover, and hold on is statistically the best way to protect yourself in the event of an earthquake, the triangle of life, uh, and, they, and they kind of poo-poo that, it's still a valuable concept and at that moment when your being is making a snap decision because things are shaking and, and the walls are moving and perhaps going to come tumbling down, you're, if you're aware of both of these concepts, then hopefully your being will, will select the proper choice at the moment for optimum outcome. So the, the concept of triangle of life is that when in a severe earthquake, and especially in other countries where there's perhaps not as 
as strong earthquake-resistant structures, or in parts of this country, like the east coast and central part of the country, the south, where they haven't really designed for earthquakes and are not used to seeing earthquakes, so they've got a lot of old structures that would not hold up well in an earthquake. Uh, in, when things do start to fall and collapse, then what might provide you with the most protection is a space that shows up right beside a really big bulky item. So for instance, a big refrigerator or a couch or sofa or a large table, if you can get underneath a very heavy table or beside one of these big bulky items, and if the roof should collapse, then the collapsing beams and materials will tend to make a triangle with a space where they're leaning up against these bulky items. And so in collapsed buildings, and people have often been found okay and alive in these little spaces. The, the people who kind of denigrate this, this philosophy say, well, it's very hard to predict where the space will actually show up. Is it on the right side, the left side, the refrigerator, whatever. But I'm just saying if you're aware of both drop, cover, and hold on, as well as triangle of life, hopefully in that two or three seconds you have to make a decision and do something if things are going to collapse, that you are in the optimal position. Well, that makes sense to me. So I, w I would have never thought about it that way. So I will look that up. That's called the triangle of life, and you can just search that on the, on the Internet? Sure, you can search it on the internet, and it's also in my earthquake chapter. Okay, in, great. In when disaster strikes. Okay, and Matt, do you want to give our listeners uh, your website before we go on? Sure. the uh, The website that's most information intensive has tons of great free articles on it. Is WhenTechFails.com. W H E N T E C H F A I L S dot com. And if you click on articles, then there's a lot of great free information like. 25 items for your grab-and-run survival, 72-hour survival kit, how to purify water, how to protect yourself and family from the next superbug, some really good stuff. And then if you want to sign up for newsletters in the future and keep up track of what I'm doing, I have a new author's website called mattstein.com, M-A-T with a single T, S-T-E-I-N.com. Great, Matt. So, Matt, you also talk about uh, the rule of threes. What, what is that? The rule of threes is, is something that can help guide you in your decision-making process in a crisis or disaster. So here it is in, in a nutshell. In three seconds, without adequate blood flow to the brain, then you pass out. And you can't, and, and you know, you're physically unable to do anything. In three minutes, without breathing or supply of air, adequate supply of air, then people tend to pass out. In three days, without a supply of water, in hot weather when people must be physically active, people start to die within three days. And in severe weather, it can be as little as one. So all these numbers are just kind of guidelines. And in three weeks, without food, you know, most of us in America could live three weeks or more without food, and we wouldn't like it, we wouldn't feel good, but we could do it, we wouldn't be dead. So it gives you an idea of the level of priorities, and so obviously if somebody's hurt severely, then first aid and CPR are incredibly valuable skills that could save someone's life in a, in a situation where it's warranted. But then after that, to be able to provide potable, you know, drinkable water for you and your family is just so important. And 
Think about the situation of families in Hurricane Katrina, where they were forced to drink out of the ditch. And you know, this is floodwaters that was heavily polluted, came by hog farms and pig farms and oil refineries. And and so, how would you feel if your child or mate or friend, you know, had to, was was sick with diarrhea and dysentery and, and vomiting because they had drank out of the ditch when for a couple of bucks you could have bought a bottle of Clorox bleach and some water bottles to treat water or you could have had a, a, a good backcountry water filter and, and in a few minutes you could pump quarts full of water that were clean and fresh and good tasting and safe to drink. And so a little bit of thinking ahead can make a huge difference. And, even if you didn't have access to any of these tools, if you knew SOTUS, which is solar water disinfection techniques that I teach in both of my books, then you could scavenge for some clear drinking water bottles out of the garbage and fill them up with water. And if you set them out in the sun in direct sunlight in six hours, the ultraviolet rays from the sun will have purified the water, will have killed the nasty bugs. And in two days in cloudy weather, we'll do the same thing. Now, if it's if it's raining or snowing, then just collect the rain or the snow and, and use that. Don't you know the the UV rays in the sun won't won't purify the water, but you got other sources of the, in those situations. So, how does Clorox work? I'm I'm just curious. That sounds so simple. Well, it's really simple, but there's downsides to it too. You know, and that's why I like to have multiple water treatment things in my grab and go kit. Right, so but if, if if that's all somebody had, if that's all you got, you take five drops, like a medicine dropper, or drops off the tip of a spoon if you had to, in a quart of water, and you swish it around. Now, here's the thing: Clorox loses potency over time. So if it's a year or more older, you'll need at least double that amount. And if you smell the bottle of bleach and it doesn't smell very bleachy, then you know you, you probably need a lot. So the downside is it doesn't taste very good, and the other side is it takes time. So if, if the water is pretty warm, in about a half hour it's had enough time to kill most of the bugs in the in the water, and that's the other problem is most of the bugs. And then if it's kind of chilly water, then you've got to let it sit for more like an hour. If it's cold water, a couple hours. If it's ice cold, like four hours for it to do its chemical trick. Now, here's the other downside. There's a really nasty bug called Cryptosporidium. that can survive. It goes into this kind of egg-like form called a cyst. And these cysts are very large and easy to filter out with a good backcountry filter. They're filtered instantly, but they're really tough to kill. So back in the late 1990s, the uh, city of Milwaukee, all of a sudden they had a half a million people sick as a dog in the city of Milwaukee, and, and over well over 100 people died. And it turned out that these cryptosporidium are common in farm animals, and it was spring melt runoff. So there was the water system was just flooded with billions of these cryptosporidium cysts, and all the chlorine in the water system wasn't able to kill them. And, and it turns out that if you soaked a whole batch of cysts overnight in 100% Clorox bleach, a few of those cysts might still be viable in the next days. Meaning that if they lodged in a nice spot like the middle of your intestines and started growing again, they could make you really sick. And it's it's very difficult to cure. It's not a, it's a very tough bug to kill. So that's the other downside. But chances are that that bleach will kill all the nasty viruses and bugs in your water with the exception possibly of cryptosporidium. But it, it, it's not guaranteed for crypto, but it will kill the rest of the bugs. 
Well, that seems pretty simple. And it, obviously you recommend having other forms um, of uh, ways to clean your water. But if you have nothing else, I mean... That and boiling be works. Boiling works, but, you know, often in a disaster, you don't have the luxury of being able to turn the stove on and boil a pot of water. So, you know, if you've got the stove and you're in your home and and, uh, and the water system's polluted, then by all means, boil the water. Now, boiling won't take get rid of pollutants like, you know, toxic chemicals in the water, but it will, it will kill every bug long before it reaches the boil. It's past the pasteurizing point, which basically deactivates viruses and bacteria. So... So it's even, no matter what altitude you're at, don't listen to people. You don't need to boil five minutes. By the time it's hit boiling, you're done. Okay, thanks for that information. You know, there's a lot of talk right now and a lot of hype. I think some of it's true, some of it's not, about solar storms. Um, I've been following this myself. And um, what are the scientists saying about this, Matt? Well, this is a really huge problem. A solar storm, and um, there's there's kind of two things that go hand in hand that are similar, but a little different. One's called an EMP electromagnetic pulse, which is when a terrorist, say you know Al Qaeda buys a, a nuclear device in the black market, buys a Scud missile for another ten millions in the black market, gets some engineer to program it, they put it on a sh on a fishing boat off the coast of the United States and blow it off in suborbital space, you know, 50 or 100 miles above the East Coast, and it cooks the electronics over millions of square miles. Now, a solar storm is something that's a totally natural, unpredictable event that comes from another nature. Now, it turns out, in the last 100 years, 150 years, we've had about 100 significant-sized solar storms. Most recently, in 2003, there's one that uh, knocked out 11 or 14 major power transformers in South Africa and messed up their grid. They, they had to get by the rolling blackouts to the whole country for over a year after that. And there was one in 1989 that, that, that fried one large transformer in Quebec and knocked out power to 6 million people for 9 hours and, and a smaller number for a much longer period of time and damaged some other transformers. But the problem with is these super solar storms that come around it's hard to say how often, but the estimates range from an average of once every 30 years to once every 100 years. Now, these super solar storms, the last one that happened was 1921. Now, so that means if, say, say they come around and the, the statistical average of scientists is maybe every 70 years, well, that means we're 20 years overdue for one, and we're heading into a solar maximum. So this is something that could actually happen tomorrow or next month or next year or next decade. But certainly, from, from scientific research, it looks like it's something that's going to happen within all of our lives. And this is a potential civilization buster. This is a major, major, major problem. The good news is that there are devices that are relatively inexpensive, like a billion bucks, uh, that could be implemented to prevent the collapse of our world as we know it. But the bad news is that so far they've been studying the problem and talking about the problem and even talking about it in Congress, but they haven't actually done anything significant to implement these relatively low-cost solutions. So now, let me tell you why this is such a big problem. It, take the 1921 storm, which they estimate comes by, you know, every, at least every hundred years in this planet, and 
If it happened today, it would induce such massive currents that would be ten times as strong as the one that tried some huge power transformers in 1989, and more than ten times as strong as the one that caused the uh, harmonics problems and fried the, fried the grid in South Africa. So this is like ten times bigger. So there was a study done by Meditech Corporation, and it's an ongoing study, and they, they modeled all of our electronic systems, and they found that these massive transformers, roughly 350, 365 was actually the number they estimated, would be destroyed, burned up in America. Well, you say, well, okay, what's the problem? 350 just, you know, transformers destroyed. Well, not so simple problem. These transformers cost over a million bucks a piece. They're custom designed for every location, custom built. There's a three-year waiting, used to be a one-year waiting line to get one of these transformers. Now it's three years because China and India have been ramping up their electrification so rapidly in the last uh, couple decades, last decade. So the world manufacturing capacity, global capacity, is roughly 100 of these per year. So when the world is working well, they can pump out about 100 of these a year. Now imagine if 350 of these in North America, U.S., not North America, just not even including Canada, 350 of these are cooked, and 2,000 of these are cooked worldwide. Most of the places that make these transformers would be grid down, would be crippled. Uh, the food would stop running. Uh, we have about a three-day supply of food in every major metro area. Everything is done on a just-in-time basis. The Internet would be down. The stock market would collapse. The nuclear power plants would start melting down like Fukushima after they run out of backup fuel in a week's time. And no, no communication and electronic, uh, electronic ability to diagnose and, and dispatch the people to correct and repair things. Those things would be all screwed up. So basically you'd have this giant monkey wrench in the spokes of our global complex interconnected machine that keeps seven billion people mostly fed and, and many of us employed and, and many of us entertained would just be falling apart except for perhaps the tropical latitudes because the Earth's magnetic field concentrates the effects of these solar storms. They'll be worse and worse the further closer you get to a pole. So places like Texas, which is mostly connected to the Mexico grid, uh, India, uh, Philippines, Malaysia, uh, parts of Australia, those parts of the world might actually come through fairly well, but most of North America, including Washington, D.C., the entire Northeast, the entire Northwest, Central America, would be in a um, bend-over-and-kiss-you-know-what situation. And if you have developed self-reliant skills, if you've been part of the transition town movement preparing for peak oil, then you'll be miles ahead of the rest. And if you're totally blissfully unaware, well, that's a great state to be in until this happens, and then then uh, it's going to be really, really tough. You know, I, I find that many folks, um, obviously not all, but many folks just don't want to hear about this kind of thing. They, they just, uh, they figure if they don't, know about it, it can't affect them. And as we know, that's, as we know, that is not true. I mean, there's this a pretty high level of passivity happening, especially in this country, although as of late, it seems like people are starting to wake up a little bit. And we're going to take a break right now. We will be right back. You're listening to Food Integrity Now.
My name is Jennifer, and I'm a health fanatic. I admit it. I read all the labels, eat organic food, and I'm very aware of what I put into my body. I practice holistic health, use alternative healing products, and never miss my daily dose of Willard Water. Willard Water is made with fossilized organics and contains nearly two dozen trace minerals that are essential to maintaining strong bones, heart health, and good energy. Simply adding a quarter capful of Willard Water to my tea makes a tremendous impact on my overall well-being. Willard Water is tasteless and odorless. Dr. Willard's patented catalyst helps our bodies better absorb the minerals and nutrients we need to maintain optimal health. If you care about your health, you'll try Willard Water today. To learn more about the benefits of Willard Water, call us at 888-379-4552 or visit our website at drwillard.com. That's drwillard.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and Willard Water is not intended to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any diseases. Hi, I'm Carol Gravet, and I'm one of the hosts of Food Integrity Now. And I've just teamed up with Sharon Farrell of Rocky Mountain Sacred Journeys. And we'd like you to come join us on an amazing adventure of fun and self-discovery. Please join us for one of our ongoing trips to Hawaii to swim with the dolphins in the wild. To find out more about our ongoing trips, please go to Wild. DolphinSwimAdventures.com or call us at Welcome back to Food Integrity Now, and we are talking with uh, Matt Stein, and he's discussing his latest book, When Disaster Strikes. And we left off, and you were talking uh, about the what could happen with a huge solar flare. And I, I understand you're working on an article right now um, that's called 400 Chernobyls. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting title, Matt. Could this, <laughs> could this really happen? Well, unfortunately, it's actually like a 10 to 1 chance that it would happen and will happen within our lifetimes. And the ten, and I'll explain that. And But the, the good news of the story is that for, on the scale of things, relatively small dollars, we can prevent this from happening. The bad news is that it's pretty much 100% guaranteed that the chain of events that we cause 400 Chernobyls if it happened today is going to happen probably within the next decade or two. And just statistically, the dice are saying it's time for one of the super solar storms to hit. Now, there's sort of two positive scenarios. One is we get hit by a smaller solar storm, like what disabled 14 giant uh, transformers and screwed up the grid in South Africa, but they were able to limp along and keep things going. That would be terrific if it hit our country. I mean, we, it would cost us billions of dollars in lost wages, and it would screw up the economy, and this and that. But we get the wake-up call, and we actually get off our you-know-whats and implement the systems to prevent this from happening. Now, the other positive thing about actually like opening your eyes and not being the ostrich with your head in the sand is that if we wake up enough people, 
and say to our governments, like, this is serious and stop screwing around. And, you know, for a billion bucks, which is tiny compared to TARP and all these other things we spend money on, we could, we could safeguard our grid from collapsing in the next super solar storm. And for another billion bucks, we could provide a year's worth of backup fuel in, in multiply redundant backup generators that are sitting in, in steel containers to be protected from electromagnetic pulse and solar storms. So that in the event that the primary generators that, that provide backup cooling when a nuclear power plant has to shut down from an emergency, and every time the grid goes down, it causes nuclear power plants to go into emergency shutdown. Now, normally when that happens is these giant backup generators that are diesel fuel powered kick on automatically and keep the cooling going to the reactors. Now, when those diesel generators, if they can't be started, or if they're destroyed, like the tsunami did in Fukushima, then what happens is, is within three hours time, or within, within less, well less than a day, in just a few hours time, the reactor core starts melting down, reactor ponds start overheating where they store the old fuel rods. And see, this is, this is kind of mind-boggling stuff. I mean, I have an MIT degree, mechanical engineering, bachelor of science, 1978. And I didn't realize that nuclear reactors are not like big pieces of machinery where you can flick switches and go through a shutdown process and basically turn them off in a, in a few hours or maybe a day. It turns out that the chain reactions in nuclear reactor cores keeps going on and on and on and on and on. Now, in a shutdown situation, they have something called control rods that are like, imagine fingers on your right hand and fuel rods, imagine fingers on the left hand, and they interweave together, like moving your right and left hands together. Now, when they're in full power, the control rods are outside of the reactor rods, and these giant chain reactions of keep going on in, in, in the uh, fuel rods, and they pump bazillions of gallons of coolant through there every minute, and it, it takes out millions of horsepowers worth of heat, and that heat is what makes our power, runs steam generators and makes our power. So you can power a giant city off of one small, you know, relatively normal size, uh, fairly small footprint nuclear power plant, is why the engineers and scientists like that. But when a, a disaster happens, when the grid fails, then immediately these control rods slam into the fuel rods and start shutting the reaction down. Well, Immediately it goes to 5% of power. Well, 5% of millions of horsepower is still like millions of horsepower. And that heat has to go somewhere. So these giant, giant uh, pumps kick in with powered by backup diesel generators and keep cooling this as the reaction slows down. And if you, a day later, a couple days later, it's down to one tenth, it's down to like 1%. And then a week later, it's down to a tenth of a percent. But it turns out like eight months after Fukushima, if those reactors lose cooling for only 38 hours, the core starts melting down again, and the reactor rods start burning again. So this is something where it's not like flipping the switch. They have to make sure and guarantee that no matter what catastrophe happens, no matter what earthquake happens, no matter what grid down situation happens, that these reactors keep cooling for over a year after they go into shutdown mode. That's a long time. Now, the NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, says, mandates that each reactor has seven days of backup fuel on hand because they're counting on 
Rib blackouts never lasting more than a day or two, and perhaps as bad as seven days. But they weren't counting on a super solar storm taking our grid down over large areas of the industrialized world, probably for years at a time, and certainly for many months. Wow, that's um. What's the solution? Well, the solution is for a billion bucks, we can protect our grid from the grid down cooked scenario. And for another billion bucks, we can protect our nuclear power plants with stored fuel on site and backup redundant systems of, of backup generators. Now, it won't necessarily guarantee that some super catastrophe, some earthquake, some something might cause a meltdown like Fukushima. I mean, we can't really guarantee that. But it will guarantee that we won't have 400 Chernobyls or 400 Fukushimas going off. And right now, today, I guarantee you 100% that if we had a super solar storm that hit our planet, like the one that hit us in 1921, we would have 400 Fukushimas or 400 Chernobyls around this planet within 10 days' time. To, you know, I mean, they'll vary. Maybe, maybe they'll have enough fuel to keep some of them from not happening. Maybe they'll, you know, some of the grid will get, get up in some places. But we'll have hundreds of these things going off. Now, what can you do? Well, as a, as a, as a proactive person, you can, you can be active on the micro level, which is helping yourself and family to be more self-reliant, so to accept that these large-scale things can happen, and what can I do to protect against that? And a great start is my new book, When Disaster Strikes, but if you want to really protect against a huge situation long-term, then you'd want the big book, When Technology Fails too. And then on the middle level, it's working with your community. Get involved in the transition town movement to be prepared for peak oil because peak oil and major grid down situations are quite similar. And so developing local resilience and renewable energy co-ops uh, so that, you know, if you can provide 10% of your energy, you know, a backup renewable energy system, solar and wind, to provide 100% of a home's power, that's quite expensive. But many of us could provide a small backup system, 10%. 10% is an incredible luxury when everything's down. You'll find you can get by just buying them 10%, and, and you'll be so grateful you got it. And similarly, community energy co-ops can be designed to disconnect from the grid and provide local power generating capacity that could give you that 10%, which keeps critical services and, and, and essential things going. So, And then on the large-scale level, it's like, wake up our politicians and say, you know, this is a really cheap, this is a really cheap thing. This is like less than a day's worth of the Gulf War, and we can prevent the end of the world as we know it. It's like, this is a no-brainer. I mean, you guys, wake up. This is, this is really, this is serious. This is a hundred percent guaranteed that we're going to get hit by a super solar storm along the rank lines of the 1921 event. And there was an 1859 event, two of them five days apart, called the Carrington event, collectively, 50% stronger by best estimates than the 1921 event. Those, they think, come around once every 500 years, but the 1921 event, that's like, you know, we're overdue for one right now. Wow. Um, <laughs> if that doesn't wake people up. Have I made your day? <laughs> if that doesn't wake people up, I don't know what will. And again, this isn't this isn't to instill fear. This is to assist people to plan. I mean, it, it, look what happened with Katrina. 
Uh, nobody was really prepared for that type of disaster. How different could that have been had folks been prepared? For 50 years, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers knew that the levee system was inadequate to protect New Orleans from a major hurricane. And for 50 years, they said, we have a problem and we know the solution and give us the money and we'll fix it. And for 50 years, the people, the powers that be, made choices to put the money elsewhere. That it was just not sexy to go and replace these levees and it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. Well, right now, we're basically in the same position where engineers and scientists who studied the problem say this is a, a, a catastrophe involving unimaginable suffering, death, and ecosystem destruction of the world along the lines of something we haven't seen since the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. And this will happen if we don't take protective measures to prevent it. And the protective measures on the scale of things, like I said, it'll cost less than a day or two of the Gulf War. Wow, that doesn't seem like that much when you put it that way. Yeah, it's not much at all. It's like, wake up. So, you do what you can to protect yourself and family, to become more self-reliant, more prepared for crises, whether they're smaller term or longer term. You take step-by-step, step, you start with the easy short-term stuff, and you work into the more extensive long-term things. Then you work with your community to start building resilience locally through the transition town movement. And then you work with your senators and you build this thing. Massive life, you know, world-changing shifts have happened throughout history. I mean, how many slave owners do you know? How many cannibals do you know? You know, women have the right to vote in this country. These were things that happened because millions and millions of people said, you know, there are things in this world that are evil and must be changed. You know, Hitler was stopped. Uh, slavery was ended. We can make massive changes if we put our minds to do it, and it takes millions of people to do it. And you start with one person to the next person to the next person, and it builds into a village, and builds into a community, and builds into cities, and builds into the world. Exactly. Well, Matt, um, it's been great having you on the show. Could you give our listeners uh, the names of your books again, and your website, and where they can get all this great information? Sure. The, uh, the, the new book, brand new, officially released the middle of November, is When Disaster Strikes, a Comprehensive Guide for Emergency Planning and Crisis Survival. The second edition of When Technology Fails is the massive book. It's still very valuable and very up-to-date, very relevant. Brand new, uh, you know, hugely revised edition in 2008. And the subtitle describes it quite well, a manual for self-reliance, sustainability, and surviving the long emergency. And my website is the information-intensive one, great free stuff at whentechfails.com, W-H-E-N-T-E-C-H-F-A-I-L-S.com. And if you want to sign up for newsletter and keep in touch, uh, mattstein.com, M-A-T-S-T-E-I-N.com. And Thank you so much for having me on. I'd like to leave people with my motto, and, and my motto is I, I ask everyone, I urge everyone to do their best to change the world and 
do their best to be ready for the changes in the world. And thanks again for having me on today. Great advice, Matt. And uh, you're just always such a wealth of knowledge to have on this show, and we appreciate that very much. You are listening to Food Integrity Now. You can find us at foodintegritynow.org. You can also find us on iTunes. Do a search for Food Integrity Now and subscribe to us. And we will be back with more great informative shows. And we will keep you informed, especially about telling the truth about the food we eat. Thank you very much. <music>